How's everybody doing today? You doing good? I want you to just want you to look at the person that's sitting next to you really quick. Why don't you tell them, say, I'm so glad you made it to church today. Yeah, yeah. Now I want you to do this. Why don't you look at the other person you didn't want to talk to that's sitting next to you, and I want you to find three things to just compliment them on really quick. Just tell them something nice. Say, man, that's a great shirt you're wearing. I, I, so some of you, you're not talking. If you're sitting by yourself, you can encourage yourself in the Lord. Awesome. <clears throat> well, good. It's so good to get to be here with you today. And uh, my wife, Jennifer, and I, I just want to tell you, it's, it is our honor to get to serve uh, here as the lead pastors here at Sozo Church and, uh, and, and to get to be in this city that we're in, this region that we're in. I, I, I truly believe this. Uh, this is not... Uh, this is not hype. Uh, this is this is the truth. I really believe that God is up to something in the Bay, in, in the Bay Area, in San Francisco uh, specifically. But I think in the Bay Area, you know, just yesterday, uh, a couple of people from our team, we we gathered with about, I don't know, maybe 150 to 200 pastors uh, for uh, this this meetup, and just to have conversations with different pastors, to hear what God's doing in their church. Um, you know, we've been known, San Francisco, we, we've been known as being the number one churchless city in America. Uh, we have, in, in the city proper alone, we have about, I don't know, eight, eight or 900,000 people and less than 20,000 people are, are attending a life-giving church. Uh, and if you put that, um, if you compare that to other, other nations around the world, that would put us in an unreached people group. And so historically, for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, maybe even more than that, um, our city here, uh, people around America kind of look at our city and say, ah, it's too hard, it's too dark, it's too this, it's too that. But now I just want to report to you that God is doing something in our city. He's doing something in our church. And I'm just so honored that Jennifer and I, that we get to be a part of this. You get to be a part of this. We get to be a part of of seeing God do something miraculous in our city and in this Bay Area. And I just want to encourage you, let's pray for our city. Let's pray for the Bay Area. If you call Sozo Church your home, I believe one of our responsibilities is to pray for our city. Jeremiah 29, 7 says this, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've called you. Pray for it because if it prospers, you'll prosper. I think as Christians, a lot of times we're guilty of just praying for ourselves. But the Bible says, don't just pray for yourself. Pray for your city. Pray for your community. Pray for your neighborhood. Pray for your work, those that you work with at your workplace. And the Bible says that as, as those people prosper, as our city prospers, our church is going to be good. Your life is going to be, it's all right. God's got you under control, okay? He's going to take care of your life. But let's just pray and believe God to keep doing some amazing things. And I say that to you uh, really kind of on the heels of this is Easter is coming up. Um, Easter Sunday, that's like the Super Bowl. Of, of church, right? It's like, you know, there's people, you know, those Easter and Christmas uh, Christians uh, that just pretty much come to church on Christmas and Easter. That's okay. We, we love those people. I hope that they come. Uh, but the reality is, it's not just Christians or those that are, are kind of have a church background, but the, the data shows us, Barna is a, is a group that's done research. Barna has shown us through research over the years that Easter and Christmas, those two Sundays, that it's uh, one of the most most uh, visited uh, Sundays uh, for people that are that, that do not claim or identify as a Christian, as a as a believer or a follower of Jesus. Uh, but people are just a little bit more open to come to church. I, I don't know why, but it's just it's just kind of the way it works. Uh, but it's also been shown to be true with the data through Barna is that people, because they're more open to come to church, all they need is just an invitation from someone. 
And so uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe it was last week, I told you, write down three people's names that you want to pray about uh, inviting to come and to experience uh, experience uh, God through this church, through this house here. And, and I just want to tell you that I'm going to do my very best. I've already started with our team planning and preparing for that Sunday service. And while we know that it's not about one standalone service, I do believe that God in one moment can transform and change a person's life. He did it for me. For some of you, that's your story. Uh, sometimes it's a journey behind the one day. You know, it's maybe it's weeks or months that God's been dealing with someone's heart. But all it takes sometimes is just an invitation from someone um, for them to come and to show up at church. And, and, and through the gospel being preached, the grace and mercy and love of God being demonstrated and expressed. Um, it's in those moments where someone's eyes can be opened for the very first time. And, and I want you, every single one of you, to experience the joy of, of this right here. Watch. Uh, inviting a friend to come to church and you feeling the nervousness to just step out and invite them. You know, because you're like wondering, like, are they going to think I'm weird or some Christian freak, holy roller, whatever? And so you feel a little bit nervous and you're kind of sweaty. You got the red splotches on your neck and you go, hey, you want to come to church? You know, I want you to experience that because it's actually a good thing uh, because we're called to be witnesses. It, it's, it's, it's God's called us to go and tell and to show the grace of God, but also to invite people to come to Christ and to be a part of this. Um, so I want you to feel that nervousness. I also want you to feel the nervousness of come into church, and some of you are like, are you trying to sell me on this? Because this is not selling me, but, but just trust me, listen to me. I want you to feel that, that, that moment where you're, you pick your friend up, or they Uber here and meet you here, and, and then they come in here, and then uh, you're thinking, man, I hope no one weird talks to them today. Uh, I hope that weird guy with bad breath that's usually at that place is not there today. You know, I want you to feel all those emotions and feelings, and then I want you to sit down right by your friend. And I want you to be thinking like, I hope they don't play that, that song. I hope they play this song. And these are really good songs. I hope Elton's wearing a really cool outfit, which we know he will be, you know, <clears throat> I want you to feel that moment. And then, and then, and then I want you to just be like, like, okay, I hope that, that Jason does not say something stupid today. I want those thoughts to be going through your mind. You, you won't even be able to focus on my message because you're just constantly peeking over to your left or your right to your friend that sat by you. And then at the end of that service, whenever I say, everyone bow your head and close your eyes, and you, you, know, you have permission to keep yours open because you brought someone. That's the only time you can, you can keep your eyes open is if you brought someone to church, you can keep your eyes open, at least one eye, you know, just kind of on them. And then I can do that little, that little, you know, that preacher invitation at the end where I'm like, hey, if that's you, raise your hand if you want to give your life to Jesus. And then, and you feel that moment, you sense that moment where you see your friend that you've been praying for, that you've been believing for, that person that you love, that person that you really, man, you want them to know God's love the way you know God's love. I want you to have this moment where all the nervousness, all the emotions, all the fear you had to overcome, all the anxiety you had to overcome, in this one moment, you see your friend lift up their hand and say yes to Jesus. It's the most unbelievable thing you could ever experience to be a part, to partner with God, to see someone's life transformed by the love of God. It's amazing. And so I want to encourage you and invite you to partner with us to to, to see people come to know Jesus. And so will you do that with me? Will you write down three people's names? Maybe you weren't here last week. You can even do that right now. Write down three people's names in your phone. Maybe you have them in your mind right now. Now Write down their, their name at, at home and, and just be praying for them, praying God work in their heart. And then, and then here's the thing, you invite them just to come and check it out. 
Just say, hey, come and check it out. Come, come see this church. Listen, you, it's Easter. It's kind of the thing to do. Why don't you just come and check out this church? And uh, we're going to do our very best to present Christ in a compelling way. Not that he needs any of our help, uh, but we're going to present Christ in a compelling way where people can say yes to Jesus. Amen? Awesome. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go with me to John chapter 8, and we're going to jump right into it today. Uh, we're in this collection of talks called Friend of Sinners. Friend of Sinners. Now, before you get up and walk out because you're like, I knew it was one of those churches that, you know, tells people they're all going to hell and they're a bunch of sinners. No, 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 listen to me. Friend of Sinners is actually a name. It was a nickname that Jesus was given by uh, a bunch of religious people, really a bunch of hypocrites. They were Pharisees. They were scribes. They were the religious elite of his day, uh, kind of the moral magistrates, right? They were the people that kind of went around the moral police, kind of telling everyone why they were wrong and stuff. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and he's, uh, he's this rabbi, which is a spiritual teacher, he's this rabbi, spiritual teacher, prophet of God, this, this man of God, representing God and the kingdom of God. When he came to earth, uh, one of the things that was unique about Jesus that was different from the other religious leaders of his day is the other religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the scribes, all these guys, they were separatists. Like they were like, because we're holy, we don't go around unholy people. Because we're like God, we don't want to go around people that are not like God. Jesus comes on the scene and he flips the script. He breaks all the religious rules. Jesus comes in and he's like, wait, wait, so you're not spiritual? Awesome. Uh, you're not religious? Awesome. Let's go to dinner. Let's go to a dinner party, right? We talked about Zacchaeus last week when there was a crowd of people following Jesus and this one guy that everyone rejected. Jesus is like, hey, everyone else is rejecting you because you're not religious? Totally cool. I want to go to your house and I want to just hang out with you for a little while. So Jesus went around hanging out with people that were not like him. Interesting, the people that were not like him, they actually liked him. And they were drawn to him. But now we live in a world today where the people that are not like God, they don't like the church. People that are not religious people or spiritual people, they want nothing to do with Christians. They want nothing to do with church. And I think it's so ironic that we find the landscape of our world in that place today, that the church is one of the, the places where people that are not like God, they feel like, man, I could never go there or I don't want to go there because of the way they make me feel. But it was so different for Jesus. Jesus, he was a friend of sinners. It actually comes from Luke chapter 7. Jesus said this in reference to their, their indictment towards him. He said, the son of man, that's himself, Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Uh, in, in the original, it says a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but because of the season we're in, I took out tax collectors. <laughs> anyway, uh, but Jesus was a friend of, a friend of, <clears throat> friend of sinners. And here's, here's, here's what I want you to see. Romans 3 says this, just so we're all level playing field. We kind of we understand kind of where we're at. Look what Romans 3 says. For everyone, someone say everyone. For everyone, that's all of us. For everyone has sinned. That word sin just means you've missed the mark. Like you, you just, you're not there. You've, you've, you, like if this is where you're supposed to be, you're like down here. You've missed the mark. If it's a target you're shooting at and this is the bullseye, you're here. Some of us are here, right? You've missed the mark. He says, everybody's missed the mark. Everybody's fallen short. Everyone's sinned. We're all, we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. So the, the good news is that because Jesus is a friend of sinners, we all have that opportunity to be friends with God, to have a relationship with God. Here's what God's after. He's not after religion. He's not after rule keeping. He's not after any of those things. You know what he's after? He's after relationship. God desires to be in relationship with every single 
one of us. So John chapter 8 is going to be our little case study that we're going to look at today. And I think it's really, it's a beautiful portion of scripture. It's the woman caught in the act of adultery is the title. A little, little, little risque. John chapter 8. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. The temple was where the Jewish people would worship. It was much like, like James Lake Middle School. The way we're treating this, this is like our temple. This is the place we're worshiping. So Jesus goes to the place of worship. He goes to church, right? He's there, and it says this. A crowd soon gathered. Crowds would always gather around Jesus. And so they gather around him, and then he sat down. And he began to teach them. The Jewish tradition, the rabbis, whenever they would teach, they didn't stand behind a podium like this. They would actually sit down in a seat and people would listen to them, lean into them while they would would teach. And so Jesus, taking this, this Jewish tradition, this place that the rabbis would sit and they would teach, he sits down. Imagine this, a crowd is gathered around him. He's in the temple area. They're at church, man. They are having church. And as he was speaking, as he's teaching and preaching, says this, the teachers of the religious law, that's the scribes, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery. So she, she's in the act of adultery. They have caught her. It says this, says uh, that the law of Moses says, uh, excuse me, says they put her in front of the crowd. This is what religion will always do. This is what religious people will do. This is what hypocrites will do. They take this woman that has been caught, been trapped in her sin. They drag her in front of the entire crowd. And he says, they say this to Jesus. They say, teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, pick up rocks and to to throw stones at her, to kill her. That's what the law says. The law says to kill her. The rule, the religious rule is when you catch someone in adultery, you stone her. What do you say, Jesus? They were trying to trap him. There's the real motivation. It's not justice. It's judgment. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus, I love this. Jesus is already sitting down, and they're standing up. It says, but Jesus stooped down, and he wrote in the dust with his finger. So he's seated, but now he goes even lower. See, this this is the story of God. God coming down in our dirt, in our dust, in our brokenness. It says, Jesus stoops down in that place and with his finger, he starts writing a little message in the dust. So beautiful. They kept demanding an answer. So then Jesus stood up again and said, all right, but let the one, Jesus is genius, but let the one who has never sinned, let that guy throw the first stone. Then he stoops down again and he starts writing another little message in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one. I imagine hearing the rocks drop, beginning with the oldest, beautiful detail, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again, and this is what he said to the woman. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord. No, Lord. And so Jesus said to her, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture? Here's what I want to talk to you about today. It's on the topic of judgment, judgment, being judgmental and condemning of others. But here's the title of my message today. I've branded this, The Greatest Message Ever Written. The greatest message ever written. Why don't you pray with me and 
And I'll share for just a few moments. Lord, we love you so much. I pray that you speak to every single one of us today. We thank you that there are no great preachers, only the great gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, will you speak to every single heart? And may we be guilty as a church of being a friend of sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we clap our hands for God's word for just a moment? Thank you. I, I remember the, the very first message I ever wrote. Uh, <clears throat> the very first message I ever wrote, I was 18 years old. Um, I had just given my life to Jesus. I had a period of about five years I was developing my testimony. Uh, I was like just, you know, doing crazy things. I was struggled with drug addiction and, and just had some really inappropriate relationships and just, just was a mess. My life was a mess. Then I came to know Christ, and, uh, and I discovered that God had called me to be a communicator, to, to preach and to teach God's word. I didn't really know what that was going to look like, but I felt that. I sensed that, that call in my, right, my, my life. And so this lady uh, named Elise Cole, she gave me the opportunity uh, to speak my very first message. Now, think about this. I'd only been a Christian for a few months, and this lady, she was crazy. I can't believe that she gave me the opportunity, but she's like, listen, I want you to write a message. I want you to write a sermon, and then I want you to come, and I want you to preach you know, to the audience that, that I have. I have a group of people that gather on Sunday nights. And so, man, I, I, I was so nervous, but I began to write my sermon. I hadn't been to seminary. I hadn't been to Bible college. I hadn't been to any of those things. I had been to prison, uh, but that was about it. And, uh, and so, anyway, so, but I'd, I'd watched a lot of people preach before, and I'd seen messages. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd, I'd get a little kick out of watching some of the televangelists and the TV preachers and stuff. I'd laugh and stuff like that. So, anyway, so I'd seen you know, some people preach before. So I basically took all the notes from my journal that I had, that I had taken notes from other sermons that people had written, and I just made like a compilation sermon. Um, and I just combined all the notes together and just thought, you know, it's going to be like buckshot. I'm just going to like spray out there, just, I'll, you know, hit something. And so I, I put this sermon together. It was, listen, it was like 70 pages long. Okay, Nate told me a couple weeks ago whenever he preached, he was like, I looked at some of your notes, they're like 15 pages long. Listen, that's good now. I mean, this sermon that I wrote when I was 18 was like, it literally was almost 100 pages. It was crazy because I had all these notes. And so I show up at this environment to preach. Now, listen, I cannot make this up. I show up. It was a, it was a women's fitness center where they were gathering, and it was a group of about 120 women. And I'm like the only guy there, okay? I'm, I feel like Joyce Meyer. If you don't know who that is, then whatever, you know? <clears throat> it's like me and Joyce Meyer. We're on like the circuit preaching at the women's conferences at a gym, okay? So I go to this fitness center, and, and, and I walk in there, and I got my Bible. I got like all these pages coming out of I mean, I look like a hot mess. And I walk behind the little podium, and the women, they were not sitting in chairs. They were actually sitting on those giant exercise ball things. <laughs> so imagine, like, all these women just kind of <laughs> just. And I get up, and I start preaching, and it was the it was not the best sermon ever. It was the worst sermon known to the body of Christ, okay? Like, I don't think there's ever been a sermon this bad written in all of humanity. This was the worst message. I preached on everything you can imagine. I, was, I preached on marriage. I preached on sexuality. I preached on, on tithing. I preached on sacrifice. I preached on purity. I preached on everything you, you can imagine. I mean, pe people just looked confused. There was a moment where it got, like, really, really boring. This woman in the back, I'm not kidding, this woman in the back, she fell off of one of those that little ball thing and I was just like I just went with it I was like God just touched that woman's life back in the back pick her up you know just so ridiculous and uh 
Man, it came time for the altar call. I preached like an hour and a half. You think I'm long-winded now. You, lucky you weren't part of the church then, okay? But I preached for like an hour and a half. Uh, ladies in the back going like this, like land the plane, land the plane, like shut this thing down. And so then I did the altar call. And, uh, and at the altar call, I started like, you know, I, I'd seen preachers do this before. So I was like, everyone, bow your head, close your eyes. No one looking around. You know, that's what preachers do. It's so weird. I'll probably do it at the end of this sermon. And... <laughs> And then I said, if, if, if you're there, if you're out there today and no one's looking around, I'm not going to embarrass you, but if God spoke to you today to give your life to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand. No one raised their hand, but I was like, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. It's like building the moment. <clears throat> so I, I'm going down the line. Like if, if God spoke to you about your marriage today, raise your hand. A few people raise their hand. If God spoke to you today about, about generosity, raise your hand. If, if you're wearing a white t-shirt today, raise your hand. You know, I'm like just whatever I can come up with. And uh, it was a disaster. And I won't tell you the rest of the story. But that's for another sermon someday. But the whole thing just kept going down. It was worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and I remember getting in my car and just thinking, I don't know if I'm called to do this. <laughs> like, that was the worst sermon ever written in the body of Christ. It was the worst, right? I thought about that story this morning because Billy Graham, Dr. Billy Graham, that just recently went to be with Jesus, he, he made this statement referring to John chapter 8. He said, Jesus preached many sermons in his ministry that we have recorded, but this is the only sermon that we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus ever wrote. See, because the Bible says in John 8 that Jesus stooped down and he began to write. Nowhere else in the Gospels do we see Jesus writing. This is the only place where Jesus wrote something that we have record of. And it was a beautiful message and a beautiful moment where he really does two things. One is he exposes the shallow, empty soul of judgmental religious people. He exposes that. And at the same time, he exposes the, the heart of God to extend grace to people that need it the most. It's such a beautiful, beautiful story. I want you to go with me and imagine this. That there's a, a church service that's happening, right? Jesus is sitting down. People are leaning in, taking notes like good followers of Jesus do. So take notes when we preach, right? So they're taking notes. They're leaning in. They're amening Jesus. And it's this beautiful moment. And all of a sudden, the doors of the temple come flying open. And these religious, pious people come flying in, dragging a woman that was just caught in the act of adultery. I'm imagining that she's probably not wearing much. I imagine that they just grabbed her right in the moment, maybe threw a, a robe around her, and they dragged this woman that has just been busted in the act of sin, in the actual act of adultery. My question is, where's the man at? Hey, thank you, Teresa. I love you so much. You make me just want to preach like T.D. Jakes. They, they grabbed this woman, and I mean, imagine... This morning I was just praying about this. I was just thinking, imagine the shame that this woman felt. You see, you, 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 you'll know a religious person when you, when you meet them by the way that they treat irreligious or non-religious people. They'll, make, they'll put them down. They'll make them feel the, the weight of their shame. You know what I've discovered about people that I meet that are not Christians? They already feel bad enough as it is. Why do we have to make them feel worse? Why are there, I was looking, I was going to put them up on the screen, but I, I didn't even want to, want to do it. I was looking at some of these protesters, these Christian protesters that stand outside of, of different places and they have these giant signs and they, 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 they're just hurling insults towards non-Christian people and calling them all these names and saying all this hateful stuff. Like, where do we see Jesus do that? And these religious guys, these scribes and these Pharisees, these guys, they know the law. 
They're the teachers of the law. They're the moral elite. I mean, these are the guys that when they went around all over the, the area there, they, they love to wear their religious robes and they love for people to recognize them. Oh, hello, uh, hello. I almost said Pharisee. Uh, Pharisectomy is what I almost said. Um, <clears throat> it's when we need the Pharisee cut out of our heart, right? <clears throat> and and they, they love to be recognized by people. They're, they're, the religious people of Jesus' day are really no different from a lot of religious people today is that we, we love to put ourselves up on this religious pedestal for everyone to see how spiritual we are and how godly we are. And these guys, they drag this woman in there. And I just imagine them with their religious kind of pomp walking in, and they just throw her. I imagine them throwing her in the dust right at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus is just sitting there in a chair, and the crowds are like, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is the temple where this is taking place. This is a, a sacred place. This is a hallowed ground. This is a place where, where, where there were so many religious rules, even around the temple, where certain things could not come in the temple. And now these religious guys have now drugged a woman that, is, that has a reputation into the temple courts, and they have thrown this woman at the feet of Jesus. How is he going to handle it? And then as they throw her down in that moment, they look at Jesus, and they, they're treating her not as a person, They're treating her not as an individual, but as a means to an end. The end is, we just want to trap Jesus. They don't don't really care about this woman. It's not about the law. It's not about uh, justice. It's not about doing what's right. It's not about God. This is all about them with their, their, their crooked, moralistic, weird motivation to trap Jesus, to make him look like he's some bad person. And in this moment, they throw her down right there, and they say, what do you think we should do, Jesus? And Jesus as smooth as he can be. I love Jesus. I mean, Jesus is so smooth. He just looks, I imagine him having a little bit of like a little like, I don't know, like just looking at them like, really, homie? I ain't even responding to that. And he just, like, what is he writing? I mean, what is he, what is he writing in in the dust there. We don't know what he's right. We don't know what the message is. Is the message to the woman, is it, I love you, uh, um, I accept you, don't worry about these other busters because they're all fools anyway. I don't know what he's writing. I I don't know if he's writing to to the religious people. I don't know if he's, I don't know what he's writing, but he's writing a message but I love the picture because the crowds are on their, on the edge of their seat the religious people are standing up and this woman's in the dust and Jesus has now done the most beautiful thing I think the church can do is that we get up from our seat and we lower ourselves in humility towards broken people and we get on their level and we don't act like we're all religious and we're all, you know, got it together and we're all perfect. We're not. As Christians, we are just as broken as the people outside of this place if not for the grace of God. Jesus gets down. You know what he's doing? He's giving this woman some dignity. This woman that has been put in a shameful place, Jesus gets down on her level. I pray that we would be a stooping church that stoops down to the place where people are broken and in the dust of their shame. And Jesus is down there with this woman in this moment, and he's writing. And then I don't know if he already had it in mind that he was going to do this, or if it just came to him. But he goes, all right. <laughs> I tell you what we're going to do here. Whoever, um, whoever has no sin, you're without sin, like you've never screwed up, you never made a mistake, you never done anything wrong, never talked back to your mom, 
never stole anything, never lied, never, whoever, whoever has no sin, you're perfect, uh, go ahead, you step up first. We need to stone her. Go ahead, let's stone her. Let's do it. And in this moment right there, everyone in the room is like, snap. He's got us. He has pegged us. The only person worthy enough to throw a stone is Jesus. And he's like, if any of you, if you, if you have nothing, you've never looked at any pornography, you've never committed adultery, you've never, you know, lusted after some person, if that's any of you in here, go ahead. I, I, matter of fact, I'll find you a rock. You need a rock? Who needs a rock? I will get you a rock. <laughs> and, and after he says that, I mean, it's a shocker. It's a crowd shocker, okay? Jesus goes, all right. And he goes back to writing his sermon. And some of the theologians, when you read different writers on this particular passage, the commentary says that uh, many people believe that when he got back down on his knees, he started writing out the sins, all these different sins, greed, lust, lying, dishonoring your parents. He's just writing out all these things. And then all of a sudden you start hearing, don't, you start hearing, it's the rocks falling from the religious people's hands. And the Bible says, from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they just walked away. I imagine it's probably the oldest people first because they've lived the longest and they have the most sins. One by one, they start to walk away. And then after every person's gone and there's still an audience sitting there, but the religious people, the judgmental, condemning They're gone. Now in this moment, Jesus stands back up. And the picture in the text gives this idea that though this woman was down in the dust initially, now she's standing and now Jesus stands up and he looks her in her eyes. These other religious people, they put her down. Jesus got down to pull her up. And he looks her in her eyes and he says, is anybody here to condemn you? And she says, no, sir. And he goes, okay, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And in this moment right here, we get the most beautiful picture of the grace of God. It's such an amazing picture. Here's one thing I I do want you to write down, though. I want to make sure you have two two things that you can walk away with today. Number one is this. Here's the first thing. It's not the church's responsibility to judge outsiders. Those outside the church, like these, this is what you see, these religious guys represent now under this new covenant, this new era that we're in, they would be like me, like I would be that guy, right? The pastors, the teachers, those in ministry, right? These religious people, those that have been Christians for a long period of time where we think we're, we're now these moral elite people. Listen, as insiders, nowhere in scripture do you see that God has given us the responsibility as church people to judge those outside of the church. It's not our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to, to look at people and say, well, well, look, at th- that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. That is not our responsibility. Those inside the church, it is not our responsibility to, ju- to judge those outside of the church. Look at this. I love this passage of Scripture. Jesus, again, in Luke uh, 6, he says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. And look at this. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. This whole thing is about grace, extending grace to people. And then he says in verse 38, this is one of the most misinterpreted and manipulated portions of scripture I think that prosperity churches use all the time. Give, and it will be given to you. 
A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A lot of people use this term about measuring, giving, giving. And as you give, you're going to receive. You give your tithe, you give your money, you give you this, and you're going to get, you're going to get. This is in the context. If you contextualize that verse, it's in the context of mercy and grace. This isn't about measuring out money. It's about measuring out mercy. It's about about measuring out grace to people. It's, it's giving people unqualified kindness. There's no prerequisites. There's no preconditions. Like, I know that you're, you, you, you probably are not perfect, but that's all right. I'm not either. And just you just measure out grace. You measure out mercy. You just extend grace. Write this down. We need to extend the grace we hope we someday never need. He says, because the measure that you give mercy and grace to people, guess what? It's going to be measured back to you. It goes on down, verse 38 says that. It says, for the measure you use, Jesus says, it will be measured to you. Let me tell you this. How much grace should you give people in this world? As much as you think you're going to need one day. And I can promise you this. You're going to need a lot. I'm going to need a lot. We, we are to give people mercy. We're to give people grace. And then that text goes on in verse 41. Watch this. So the church is not responsible for judging those outside of outside of the church, sinners or outsiders. That's not our job, okay? But watch this, verse 41. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own, high, or your own eye? You hypocrite, that word hypocrite, I can't pronounce it because I don't know, really know Greek, but uh, if you look at the original language there and you dig into it, the word hypocrite comes from uh, the screenplay, the, the people that would, screenplay, the people that would get up and they would perform in front of an audience back in the Roman culture and they would, they would do this, it would be one person playing different parts and they would put on different masks and that's what a hypocrite was and he's saying, hey, you're just wearing a mask, that's all you're doing, you're playing a part but that's not the real you. He's like, you hypocrite, watch this. First, somebody say first. first. Remember, Jesus said, you that are without sin, you first. You, you cast the first stone. He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now listen, he uses the word brothers here. That's those that are in family and in fellowship together. Now watch, though, though as, as, as a church and as Christians, we're not called to judge those outside of the church let me tell you this, that within the church, we are called not to judge one another, but to help one another grow. And the way that we can grow in our character and conduct in Christ is to keep one another accountable. But here's what has happened within the church. As the church uses this text to say, don't judge others or you're going to be judged, right? But then he goes down verses later and says, no, 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 we're actually supposed to, to just first examine ourselves, and then we can actually help the people around us to grow and their character and conduct in Christ. And so now we live in a generation that, that inside the church, whenever one Christian confronts another Christian about sin in their life, they go, don't judge me, right? Who, who are you to judge me? You're not supposed to judge, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And we use these scriptures. But man, I'm telling you, within the body of Christ, we're not called to judge one another, but we are called to evaluate one another. The Bible actually says, calls it, says it like this. We inspect the fruit of a person's life. If, if there's no apples on an apple tree, it may not be an apple tree, right? If, if you never see any fruit growing on the tree, that tree is either not really a tree that is producing that type of fruit or that tree is dead and is dying. 
And the Bible says as Christians, with other Christians, we are to inspect and to evaluate one another's fruit in our life. It's not to judge, but it's to help one another grow. That is what we are called to do. Ephesians chapter 4, I love this, and I'll give you your second point in just a few moments. But Ephesians 4, look at this. There's a lot of verses, but follow along with me. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility, there's responsibility, their responsibility is to equip or to prepare God's people to do his work and to watch, build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and in our knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. The picture you see here is that God's desire is for us to build one another up, to help one another, to equip one another, to prepare one another. It's not just my job. It's our job, insiders within the family of God, to help build one another up. Why? So that we can mature. It's the maturation process. So we can mature, measuring up to the full standard of Christ. And he goes on in verse 14. He says, then, then after that, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when, we, when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, look at this. We will speak the truth in love. This is the glue that holds this whole thing together. We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. How many want to become more like Christ? I want to become more like Christ. So you know what that takes? It takes me opening up my life to say, while the church's responsibility is not to judge people outside of the church, I do want to be in a place of community where I can look at the people around me. I can look at my wife. I can look at Josh, Gabby. I can look at, I can look at Elton. I can look at Logan. I can look at these people that I'm in relationship with, and I can say this to them. I want to grow, and I want to be more like Jesus. And if you see anything in me that doesn't look like Jesus, will you lovingly speak the truth to me? You see, I think sometimes we think that the most hateful thing and the most, the, the most lacking of grace thing we can do is, is confront someone when actually it's just the opposite. One of the most loving things we can do is keep people accountable and come to someone in love and speak the truth and say, listen, the way you spoke to your wife, that's not cool. Like, that's not like Jesus, and I know that's not your heart. I know you don't want to do that. Or the way that you, you're doing this with your family, and your kid, that's not okay. Or the way you're conducting business, you're a follower of Jesus. Like, I, I don't think you want that. Here's practically what I want to give you to do with this. Maybe ask this question to the people in your community, Christians in your community. Ask this question. Hey, is there any, I'll just put it right here with Josh. Josh, is there any area of my life, of my leadership, anything you see in my life that if you spoke into it, I could get better? If there's any area, like, could you have, could I have, could we have enough courage, transparency, vulnerability to be able to say, I want to grow and be like Jesus. And so my life is an open book and you can call out the things you see in me that don't look like him. See, while the church does not have a responsibility to call out people outside of the church, we do have a responsibility to call up those within the church. We're to call one another, not out, but up. And here's the second thing for you, and I'll hurry and wrap up. Oh, you can come on up. Number two, listen, we have a responsibility to examine ourselves first and most. This is, this is I think, the bread and butter right here. Romans chapter 12, verse 3, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, Paul says, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. You know what he's saying? You need to have a sense of self-awareness, and you need to be honest. 
Like I think, a lot, I think these religious people that Jesus kind of calls up and calls out in this moment uh, in the temple, I think what he's doing is he's, he's, he's just, he's showing them that like your, your evaluation of yourself is actually off and you're not honest with yourself and I'm going to help you see what you don't see. I'm going to help you evaluate yourself in, in, in an honest way, in a candid way. Like I, w- I want to put the mirror in front of you so that you can see it. I, I, I've been thinking about this scripture all week because I think a lot of times it's so easy to hold people to a certain standard and to be so hard on them and judgmental and condemning towards them. And we don't even hold ourselves to that own standard. But the better thing to do is, is to first look within yourself and say, is, are there some areas of my life? Is there, is there a plank in my eye? Is there a plank in my character that needs to be dealt with? But I love how it says, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. But watch this, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. You know what that means is, number one is, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. But then have a, have a spirit of faith to see that, okay, I'm not where I need to be. But thank God I'm not where I used to be. But God, I thank you that you're going to get me to where I should be. It's having a measure of faith to see where you could be. So you don't just have an evaluation of yourself where you now you put yourself down and now you feel down and you have a low self-esteem and, oh, I'm such a bad, pity, poor person. No, no, no. You just go, okay, here's the reality. My attitude really stinks. But I know that I can begin to work on it. And I can have a sense of faith to see the potential of what my attitude could be. And so now, God, thank you that you've shown me the thing that I need to work on. And now I'm going to have a spirit of faith and I'm going to work on that thing. Isn't that good? I love that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Here's what Paul says again. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Examine yourselves first and most. I believe that the longer you're in this Christian faith... This is just like my admonishment and warning to you is that the longer you're a Christian, what happens is, is you begin to, you begin to work on your life. Like you begin to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to work out things in your life. And then, you know, where you used to be like just a major, just jerk. Now you're like, you're a good person, right? And then where you used to be dishonest in your business dealings and now you have integrity. And so, so those things happen and that's good. Your life morally, you begin to align your life with the moral will of God. That is the things that God, according to his word, wants you to do. So now you, you're, living, you're living up to this certain standard, but this is, what, this is what's so easy to happen, and this is what happened with these religious guys. is you look back at your life the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you see this track record of morality, and then you, begin, you become your functioning savior, and now it's your own morality that now you find your identity in. And now it's like, oh, I prayed a prayer and Jesus saved me on that day in 2000. But now the last 15 years, I've been a really good person. And now we begin to find our identity in our morality. And, and now we become that functioning savior. And now we kind of no longer need Jesus. And we're our new Jesus, right? And then, and then as if that's not bad enough that now our identity is in our morality, now we begin to prop ourselves up and then we become like the religious people throwing people down that's what we can do and I just want to encourage you let's not do that <laughs> let's not do that <laughs> bow your heads close your eyes <laughs> I don't know another better way to say that 
Let me, let me finish with this. I'll, I'll finish with this little, little story here. Um, in 2013, I, um, uh, I had one of my dear, dear spiritual fathers and mentors he had a moral failure. And, um, and he would be okay with me sharing this um, because he's, he shared it now. God's now restored him, and it's, it's amazing. But, um, man, I so love this, this man, such a dear man. And uh, there's people even in this room right now that, that this is their same story as well. That they looked up to this, this pastor. And what happened is, is I think I had, I had kind of idolized this person. Jonathan Edwards wrote in one of his books, he said, be careful in venerating your saints because the one that you idolize when they fail you, which they will, the one that you idolize, you'll then demonize. And so this, this religious spiritual leader, spiritual father of me, I kind of propped him up to a place. He never asked for me to do that. I just did it. And, and then when he failed morally, man, it hurts so bad. I, I, it kind of resurfaced some wounds from when my dad, who was a pastor, when he had moral failure. So it made me kind of, I just got so judgmental. And I started on, if I'm, if I'm being candid with you guys, I started talking about him behind his back to other people and just like, I can't believe him. And I was so harsh, zero grace, zero grace. I mean, I'm dragging him into the temple, throwing him in the dust and saying, let's stone him. That, that's me. That's how I was doing. And it was because I was hurt. It wasn't because I was a bad, bad person. I was just hurt. And I forgot how much grace God had, had shown me through the years. And I remember being outside of my ch- the church that this pastor pastored, and I was standing at um, in a flower bed that had rocks in it, and uh, like hardscaping or whatever. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I want you to pick up two rocks. And I picked up these two rocks, and I, had them, I was clenching them in my fist. That's how angry I was at this, this guy. And I felt like the Lord said, I want you to take one of those rocks and I want you to give it to him and promise him that you will never throw any more stones at him and that you'll only extend grace to him and you'll never say another bad thing about him. You'll only honor him. And then I want you to take the other, and he said, I want you to take that rock and put it in his hand. And I want you to take the other rock and I want you to put it in your pocket as a reminder that though you have many sins in your life that you've dealt with and there are rocks that could be thrown at you, I have not thrown any at you. I feel like God said. And you keep that rock in your pocket until in your heart it's flooded with grace and you finally can forgive him and extend grace to him. And on his last day on staff as he resigned, there was a, it was almost like a funeral procession of about 150 staff members that were saying their goodbyes to this pastor. And I was the last person in that line and I walked up to him, tears streaming down my face. He's crying. And I took that rock out of my pocket. And I had one in my hand. I had one in this other hand. And I opened his hand and I placed it in his hand. I closed his hand. I said, I promise I'll never throw another rock at you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me for being so judgmental and condemning towards you. And man, he just squeezed my hand. And he kept that rock. The funny thing is that I kept that rock in my pocket for probably six months until one day I realized I didn't have that rock in my pocket. I forgot it. And right then God said, that's the point. That's the point. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Lord, we love you so much. God, I thank you for the grace that you've, you've given us. You've extended so much grace to us. And I think we become like those religious people whenever we just forget that. And we can just forget it. We can forget that you've been so good to us. You've extended so much grace. You are our friend. You're a friend of sinners. Your friend, you're, you're, you've been so friendly and so gracious and so loving to, to me, to us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be like that to other people, that we would extend grace to people 
that we would be, we'd measure out mercy to the same degree we want to receive mercy. And God, I pray that for our church. And with every head bow and every eye closed, I won't take a lot of time with this, but if you're here today and you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to. Today, I want to, I want to, I want to begin following Jesus. I want to pray for you. And it will be a simple prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come down to the front or to go to some side room. I just want to know who I'm praying for. And if that's you today and you say, I want to become a follower of Jesus, will you just do this on the count of three? Will you just lift your hand up really quick and you can put it right back down? I just want to see who I'm praying for. On the count of three. One, two, three. We just lift up your hand if you say, I want, to, I want to be included in that prayer. I want to become a follower. Thank you right over here. Thank you right over here. Anyone else you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Thank you, sir, in the back. Maybe you could just pray a prayer like this. You can say it in your own heart. Say, Jesus, today I confess that I am a sinner, but I thank you that you are a friend of sinners. I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins to forgive me, to give me a new start. Today I want to follow you. Will you help me follow you? For, the, for all the days of my life. For all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.